The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 11, The Upanishads, Part 1. Here we go. Okay, let's start with an explanation of the show's title, Upanishads, Part 1. Part 1. I can hear what you're saying, Jack. Jack, Jack, first, you tell us you're going to give us an episode on Indian literature. Just a quick overview to bring us up to where the other civilizations are. The Greeks, Chinese, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians. But the Indians, they had a heroic age too. And that was the promise. Where's India in that mix of ancient civilizations? What do we see from them by this point? And that was the original idea. One quick episode. One quick episode. Like a three-hour tour. That was the first comment, Jack. Then, you tell us that you're going to break it down into three episodes. The Vedas and the Upanishads, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, including the Bhagavad Gita. And now, now you're telling us the Upanishads part one. Part one? Come on, Jack. What's going on here? Yes, dear listener, this is part one. And there may be more to follow. Here's the deal. I'm not sure I've been totally honest with you. Not just in the last episode, but throughout our history of literature journey so far. Oh, I haven't lied. I haven't misled. I haven't been deceptive. Not intentionally. Everything I've said has been my best effort. I've tried to get the details right. I've tried to give you the overall picture. I've tried to give you my take on these works. I've done my best. But what was our original mission? Remember that? Back in the first episode, episode zero, Battling the Beast was what we called it. Is literature dying? That was our mission. A lot of feedback on that episode came in, and they were along these lines. I'll always prefer paper, Jack. Don't worry, literature is not dying because I'm not ready to give up my hard copy. That wasn't the point. I wasn't talking about technology. Technology has changed over the the millennia. Ebooks can certainly convey literature just as effectively as paper. That's a personal preference. That's not what I'm talking about. Then there was this comment. Don't worry, Jack. I still read a lot. I love to read. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you do. I hope there are many others like you. Notice, though, I didn't say that literature was dead. That's not my claim. I said it might be dying. That was my concern. That in today's world, all the literature, meaning all the poetry and short stories and novels and plays and everything else, on the margins, all the other forms of literature that can be squeezed in under the general umbrella of literature. What if all that just wasn't as effective anymore? What if it wasn't as necessary? 
What if we could turn to other sources to get what we needed, to get what we used to get from literature? We have so much entertainment at our fingertips now, available on demand. We have so much information. And also, so much ability to express ourselves or to communicate with one another. The lines of thought are crackling. That's what I'm calling the internet now. Lines of thought. The wires. The lines of the tubes. The lines of thought are crackling with energy. Lines. Our minds. Our fingers. The world. The lines of thought moving in both directions. Thoughts, ideas, personal experiences. Our empathy is engaged. Our amusement, our shock, all the emotions that literature provides, all the effects, they're all right here. Well, as we started with the ancients, started with Gilgamesh, and moved on, there was one advantage that literature still had, the passage of time. That is, even if a novelist today can't compete with the power of the internet, the internet can't jump back 3,000 years and give us the news of what the world is like at that time. There are no ancient Mesopotamian bloggers to tell us what life was like or to give us a good story, which along the way explains the cultural norms of a distant society and the values and the character and the beliefs of leadership and citizenry. For that, we turn to Gilgamesh. And we did that several other texts as well in different societies and different time periods. And here's where I felt like, looking back, I haven't been honest with you. I haven't really addressed my own role in this process. You see, I'm not just a literary historian. That's not why I came to this. I'm a reader. That's all. Those are the terms by which I've set this project up. I can give you the encyclopedia version of each of these major books. And a part of me kind of wishes I'd set it up that way. It would be so much easier. Just do a little research, write up a little script on a work and its importance, and deliver a brief, detailed overview. I don't know who'd be subscribing. If it'd be a different audience, maybe you're sitting there listening, thinking, that is the podcast I want, Mr. Wilson. Why don't you switch gears and give me that? Oh, it's so easy. NPR does that kind of thing in their sleep. But that's not me. That's not why I came to this. That's not what this show is about. So, I've tried to give you my take on each of these works as I've read them. It takes a lot of reading sometimes. Along the way, I've been pleasantly surprised by the books I've been reading. Some of them for the first time. Most of them, my return visit after years, even decades away from them. Now here, the time travel advantage has been key. All the works we've done so far has been, have been ancient, and I felt like they're important and essential for understanding our world, if for no other reason that they had an impact on our world. Understanding previous cultures, individuals, the way people thought, the way people dreamed, the way they told stories, all of that has had its effect on the way we 
think about things today, the way our society is structured today. I've enjoyed the reading. But here's where I got stopped. India stopped me. This is where I feel like I haven't been honest, or at least I need to be more honest. I need to give you some full disclosure. Fuller disclosure. India is really stopping me. Because suddenly I find that I'm faced with a literature that I can't just put into this bucket and say, this is part of the past. And it has some some comparative advantages. We can gain something from a comparison between this society and our society or this literature and the literature we create or read today. I can't just say we can understand the people of the past and recognize the patterns and the differences and use that to understand ourselves today. I can't do that with this literature with these ideas, with these thoughts. This is, this is literature that for me, I can't read with detachment. This is a body of work that I once immersed myself in as part of my own spiritual journey. Then I got away from it as life crowded it out, pushed me to one side, pushed me in different directions. It was like Odysseus, blown by the winds, but now, I might need it again. My journey may have been on hiatus, but it might be time for me to return. I'm a different person now than I was then, but I'm interested in seeing what this literature can do for me now. Not in the part of my brain that likes history and culture, analyzes things rationally, conventionally, no, the part of my brain that is afraid of death or wondering what forces drive the universe or feels like there may be energy within my mind that has gone unexplored or untapped. That's the part of my brain that I'm trying to reach now. I felt it engage. It was like a an old ship it was like my Millennium Falcon and sitting there in the sands, dusty and unused, creaky, but still there. Started reading these works and I felt like I was climbing on board an old, familiar vessel. Something I knew could take off. Can I gain this from literature? Can I gain anything from reading this kind of literature? Can I understand myself better? My mind? What it means to be a human? I felt this when I was young. I was confident that I could. Uncertain of how to go about it. Excited for the project. And guess what? I'm feeling it again now. Or at least... I'm remembering the feeling. It's the question I want to answer. That's what I want to do. If I'm going to spend time with these texts, I want to immerse myself in them. 
And if this podcast has any merit at all, I won't keep that from you. I won't just march on, do 30 minutes on the history of the Upanishads and move on to the next text. Not some little box we're going to check off. One stone in the river we're going to hop to and then hop from. I need to dig in deeper than that. I need to give myself some time. I need to explore. My mind needs to engage. Breathing room. That's what we need. We sail from text to text like we're navigating the ocean. Our sails fully unfurled. It's been fun. It's been exhilarating. At our best, we skip across the waves, the breeze blowing our hair back as we face the new horizons. That's one way to read literature. It's a fun way. There's value to it. I hope you've enjoyed it. As we've made that journey thus far. But now, I'm lowering the sails. The sea is calm. Our ship is still. Below us are some uncharted depths. We're going to jump in and see what's down there. Let's go, dear listener. Let's jump together. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. So, what are the Upanishads? Why did we stop here? Let me start with a story. This might have been the true source, the initiation of my own relationship with literature. It was an epiphany I had. It came from a teacher, a high school math teacher. He was a friend of my father's, a cool guy, someone who cared about his students. He taught probability and statistics, trigonometry, and he sprinkled his lessons with life wisdom. I knew a little bit about his life outside of school. He hunted. He farmed a little on the side. He reminded me of Cincinnatus, although I didn't know that at the time. He used to buy books at auctions. That's what you can afford to do on a teacher's salary. He'd go to an estate sale, buy boxes of books, and collapse in his hammock to read one book after the other. That was his summer. Those were his evenings. 
and he recognized in me a kindred spirit. I was the kind of kid who would read the back of cereal boxes. And he recognized that I was a, fo- a fellow reader. But what was I reading? That was a question he asked me. So, what do you read? I read about sports, I told him. Sports magazines, books about sports, the sports section of the newspaper. That's about all I read in those days. It's how I fit in. Being a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old is hard, especially in a, a hard area, a tough area, a community where reading for pleasure is not all that common. Sports was safe. It didn't threaten my popularity at school with those around me who found reading to be strange, unusual, waste of time, brown nosing. Oh, he said, sports are fine, but there's so much more out there. Go find it. I asked him for a few suggestions of things, other things to read. He gave me some names of some titles of historical fiction he thought I'd like, and I did. He was easing me in, I can see now. Because soon enough I was at the library, piling up books and towers just like him, just grabbing historical fiction, plowing my way through it. One author leading to the next, one book leading to the next. Different periods of history jumped out at me. And then at school, during breaks of our class or in the hallways when he'd see me, he'd ask me about these books, how they were going. I enjoyed talking about them with him. And then one day I happened to mention how much I had enjoyed the proofs in geometry. I told him I love the idea of fundamental principles, that you started with those and worked your way up to new proofs new things you could demonstrate definitively based on those principles and principles of logic. I love the process of it, the solidity of the chain, one truth leading to another, the satisfaction of getting a new result, sometimes unexpected, sometimes appearing as if by magic. And I said, I wished you could apply that to other things, not just lines and angles, but other difficult problems, difficult life problems, questions, understanding who we are. I wish there was a way to tackle those kinds of questions with something as neat and simple and precise as a geometric proof. And he smiled and he said, oh, you should read some Descartes. He tries to do that. And he even gave me a kind of a spoiler and told me that in the end, Descartes believed that he had proven the existence of God, which didn't actually spoil anything. It didn't make me not look forward to reading it. It only made me more curious. And so I sought out the book and I read it. I disagreed with Descartes' logic, but I loved the process. I loved the effort. I loved the experience of engaging with the ideas I had moved beyond sports with just that one book. 
It's a fantastic, unexpected experience, how much I enjoyed it. Frankly, I've forgotten everything from trigonometry class, but I haven't forgotten that. I haven't forgotten the joy, the power and the joy of engaging with that book by Descartes. So now, here I am, years and years and years later, college has come and gone, graduate school, half a career. I'm at the famous Dantean midpoint, that region where you get lost in the dark woods, where you lose your way, where you feel like you've lost your way. You're not going to find it. You don't know where to go. I'm in the dark woods. A friend of mine resists the phrase midlife crisis, and I can see his point. I had some of these same thoughts at 20. I had lost my way then too. I'll probably have them at 80. There's nothing special about these thoughts. Any adult can have them at any time. But there's also no denying that I've changed since I was 16 when I was first reading Descartes. I'm not on the verge of the unknown anymore. I no longer have every option available to me. A whole lifetime of possibilities out there waiting for me to pick a path. More importantly, I've stretched out. My experiences have affected me. Some wisdom has accrued. Some cynicism as well. But here's something I haven't lost. I still have this desire to find truth and to get there through logic. In my own personal experience, I still have a hard time accepting that truth is something that someone else knows. If my mind can't think it, if I can't see the logic in it, then my skepticism will probably prevail over certainty. I just am not constitutionally capable of accepting truth from a priest or a, a guru or a sage or a politician or anyone else who tells me to be quiet and stop asking questions. That they have the answers and that if I can't follow them or I disagree, that that's my problem and not theirs because they're the holders of these sacred truths. That's just who I am. As I started reading the Upanishads this time around, my mind began to fire. Thoughts started leaping around, ideas. It's the best feeling when you're not just taking what's handed to you by the words, not just a passive receptacle for them, but when you're engaging with them, feeling your way through them, coming up with ideas of your own, seeing for yourself what's true. And I wrote down three ideas. That was the first step. That was the moment when I knew that this episode would need to be different. If I was any kind of host at all. I can't pretend to you that this is just another day at the Wikipedia machine. That's not what interests me. And I promised myself long ago when I started this podcast that I wouldn't just phone these episodes in. You want a host who doesn't care, who fakes it? You should go elsewhere. Find a professional. Find someone on the radio who earns a salary for a series like this. A professor. Find someone with zero imagination, zero creativity, zero questions or self-doubt. Find someone who cranks out facts and statistics 
and says they love books, but who doesn't care about lifelessness. Find that person, but maybe find them later. Not yet. Stay with me for now. We're getting to the good stuff, I promise. So what did I write? Here are the three things that I wrote down. Three foundational principles that matter to me as I sit here today. I've stared at them. I've revolved them around in my mind. I'm seeing connections between them. I'm seeing how far they can reach. Somehow it seems to me that I can't dispute any of them. And even though they're not as basic as Descartes' cogito ergo sum, I don't think anyone can dispute them, really. I don't think there are serious arguments against any of them. This isn't a, an epistemological inquiry into what we can know. It's an inquiry into how we should live and what role our own mind has in that. I also think they're important, although the meaning might not be clear at first. That's what we have. Three axioms for us to consider. Our job will be to see what flows from them and whether any new discoveries can be anchored in them. Here's axiom number one. Everyone will die and all things will pass. Consciousness, that is my consciousness, may or may not end. I do know that the world will continue without me. The world will continue either way. Here's number two. My outlook affects everything. When I'm positive, things are better. When I'm negative, things are worse. Or they seem worse. And I can change my outlook. Here's number three. I know this to be true. Different states of mind exist. Different levels of consciousness. Because I experience them. Sleep is a different state of mind. I know my mind works in ways I don't understand because of sleep. During sleep, I don't control my consciousness the same way. I don't experience consciousness the same way. And this is a natural thing. Why do we go to sleep? What is the cause of sleep? What is its purpose? It's not just rest. My mind doesn't just power down like a battery. It needs energy. It's not sleep mode. We call it sleep mode. Sleep mode for a computer, it's a terrible name. That's not sleep at all in real life. Something else happens during sleep. My mind does something. That's it. Those are the three. I started drawing connections between them, which I'll get to in a minute. They're like primary colors, where if you mix them, you get new colors. Those new colors are what's interesting. First, let me acknowledge they're kind of random, kind of scattered. They're a selection of things I could have chosen. Other people might want to start their inquiry with three others. These three to me are interesting for the way they mix with one another and their importance, their centrality to how I understand myself. 
you may wish to do the same with different ideas. See what happens. And then I apply this method. Think about these three ideas as I'm reading the Upanishads. They're great for this. They have a long tradition, thousands of years of being central to Hinduism, which is one of the world's great religions. But they don't just belong to Hinduism. The flashes of insight in the Upanishads can belong to anyone interested in religion or philosophy or the nature of the soul, the nature of consciousness. You have a belief in something eternal or have questions or doubts about eternity and timelessness. There's rich material in here for you to explore. Frankly, if I'm being honest, I don't love Hinduism as a religion. I respect it, sure, and I certainly respect the beliefs of all of its practitioners. Just as I respect the religious beliefs of everyone, everywhere. Let's say I'm not tempted to become a Hindu. I've never felt invited. For one thing, I wasn't born into it. Doesn't feel that welcoming to me. The caste system is antithetical to how I view the world and how I want to view the world. I understand that there may be some disputes about the caste system, and I hope you'll forgive me if you believe that the caste system is distinct from Hinduism or not fundamental to it or an abomination that was imposed on Hinduism or that Hinduism has evolved and risen above it. Those things are true, and for all I know, one or more of them might be. Then I apologize. But I'm telling you what's been handed to me is my understanding, which is that Hinduism is still strongly based on a caste system, which is a fact I just struggle with. I like the little guys. I like the chance of upward mobility. I like equality. Those are values I hold dear. You can tell me about reincarnation and explain to me. Souls will migrate upward over time. But I like the facts on the ground. I like looking around and know that people are being treated fair, fairly, now. It makes me suspicious of the caste system. Is that so crazy? I'm suspicious of what it means to have a group of people who are at the top, who are born into an upper class, an upper caste. How is that not a pollution of your mind? To think that you were born into a position of privilege and to view some of your fellow humans as untouchable, to be that unworthy. Okay, that's enough. This isn't isn't an episode about Hinduism. And there are many other things I do admire about Hinduism. Certainly the philosophical underpinnings. Completely admirable. There's ancient wisdom here, some understanding of the self, reflection of the human condition. All this that I find helpful and inspiring. There are ideas here that give me room to think and inspire me to view things in new ways, to measure myself, and my own understanding of my consciousness against what I have to admit are some of the deepest and most impressive investigations into the soul that I've ever seen. 
There's a lot in here that I can accept as true or that ring true. And it feels worthwhile to consider much of this philosophy as I endeavor on my own quest to understand life and the life of the mind. Here's what Gandhi said. Gandhi pointed to one line in the Upanishads and said, if this line and this line only were to survive, Hinduism would survive. Actually, let me give you his full quote, the actual quote, which is just quite extraordinary and beautiful. He said, if all the Upanishads and all the other scriptures happened all of a sudden to be reduced to ashes, and if only the first verse in the Ishopanishad were left in the memory of the Hindus, Hinduism would live forever. And later, he was asked to give a summary of his religious philosophy, a summary in three words. And he chose three words from that same line, the same first line, the same first verse. Three words. A religion, he's willing to stake an entire religion on three words. Now, what three words would you choose if you were a Christian? And you were asked to do the same. It's an interesting thought experiment. I took the challenge. I gave myself the challenge and took it. What, what words would you choose? Jesus loves you? Or God loves you? Jesus died for you. Jesus lives. Love one another as you love yourself. I know that these aren't all three words, but we don't need to be sticklers about this. There's a lot on the line. Six words would do. If you could do it in six words, that would be just as impressive. Turn the other cheek. What would you choose? Gandhi's three words came from the first Upanishad, the Isha Upanishad. wasn't the first written, but it's the one that usually stands as the first in collections. The mere 18 verses long, two or three pages of text. It's viewed as giving us the foundations of Hinduism in grand poetic language. Other Upanishads tell stories or have a dialogue between a teacher and a student. But the Upanishads in general, it's not a consistent narrative work. It doesn't have a start and a finish. It gives flashes of insight for us to consider. And in the first Upanishad, the Isha Upanishad, these flashes of insight are conveyed in with a poetic grandeur. Very striking. Here are the three words. Tina Chaktina Punjita. Those are Gandhi's three words on which he's willing to rest Hinduism. And here they are as translated into English. Renounce and enjoy. Renounce and enjoy. Two verbs and a conjunction. It's a little exhilarating. I find myself a little breathless thinking about it. These are promising words. 
read that phrase, renounce and enjoy. I'll admit the rest of the Isha Upanishad, or taking it as a whole, gives me some pause. I'm sure it's important for those who are already believers or for those who want to believe. What I don't like, and things I don't like, I don't like that it cries out for interpretation and explanation. Some of these poems are abstract to the point of not standing on their own, barely hinting at what they mean. The word Upanishad itself means sitting down near. That's the translation. Like a student sitting at the feet of a teacher. I don't love this aspect. My antenna start twitching when I hear that. I don't love the idea of relying on other humans for wisdom. I've seen too many flaws in humans. I've seen too much fraud, too many agendas, too much weakness, too many mistakes. I've seen too much unwarranted certainty, too much self-confidence, too many fallen heroes. The word renounce is a difficult one. My antenna are twitching a little bit at that word as well. I face this with Buddhism. Whenever I consider Buddhism and see what Buddhism has for me, give up everything, give up everything, renounce, renounce all desire because all desire, desire leads to suffering. Best to renounce it. And I think you can take that too far. Give up all earthly desires. Might not be productive. It might not be possible. I'm not even sure it's a worthy goal. I have a desire, an earthly desire for my kids to be healthy and happy. I'm not giving that up. Sorry, religion. You will have to be flexible enough to accommodate that. I'm not giving up the most important thing in my life for whatever it is you're promising. You will never convince me that my desire to see my kids survive and prosper is worth giving up. That it's a negative for me to think that. That it will only lead to suffering. That energy, that love, that's a positive thing in my view. Now, maybe I've oversimplified how about this? I want my kid to be a, a famous concert pianist or a basketball star or to go to an Ivy League school. Now, if that's what you want me to renounce, I'm all in. I can see the wisdom of that. Those seem like positive goals, but they're actually not. Those goals will lead to misery. And not just because if you don't get them, you'll feel disappointment or because even if you do get them, you'll realize that you still feel empty. That's the, the general way of looking at wealth, right? Goals regarding my kids can be like wealth in that sense. Those goals are destructive from day one. They set artificial expectations. They impact the, your relationship with your child infect your relationship in ways that aren't necessarily positive or probably negative, in fact. 
listen to the difference between these two notions. Here's the first one. I want you to be happy. I want you to do well. And I think doing well will make you happy. That's one thing. Now listen to this. I want you to be happy. I want you to go to Harvard. I think that will make you happy. Those are two. <laughs> I only changed one sentence in the middle. I want you to do well, and I want you to go to Harvard. Those are the, that's the only change I made, but those are two very different sentences. I can give up the second one. I, I should give up the second one. That's something to renounce. I agree with you. If that's what you mean by renounce, I agree. I should give that up. I should let that go. I shouldn't let that enter my, my view of the world, my child. And I said, I want you to go to Harvard. That's not really, that's not really me. That's <laughs> using that as an example. There may be other examples as well. Even just, I want you to smile in a certain way. I want you to comb your hair. I want you to smile in a certain way. I don't want you to embarrass me. Kids feel all those things. Take a look at them and see what should be renounced, what you really need to hang on to, why you're hanging on to it. We can expand this out. We don't need to talk about parenting. So many other things to renounce that I should renounce my fears of embarrassment and shame, my fear of things I can't control, or my irritation at being undervalued by others. That's a big one for me. Here's the kind of thing I do. I complete a project for others to review. I'm talking about work now. That's my job. Draft a project. Others are going to review it. While I'm waiting for their feedback, I convince myself that they're going to criticize the project and that their criticism will be unfair because this has happened to me before. I assume it will happen again. What did this do? I took no pleasure in doing the project because I was thinking about this future feedback and now I take no pleasure in being finished with it. I've spent the whole time dwelling on how irritated I am by what the others are going to think. I give them no credit for understanding what it is I've done. I give myself no peace, no satisfaction. All that energy all that irritation is wasted. I let it spoil my entire day. That day, too, is wasted. Other things set me off more easily. My anger comes to the fore more quickly. Not if I renounce. That's our first word. Our first word of the three. Look at how renounce connects to my three foundational principles. Number one, my consciousness will end. Why would I want to waste it? It's a precious commodity. 
spent in irritation over an imaginary reaction, an anticipated imaginary reaction, is a day wasted. My precious, my most precious commodity has leaked away. And I let it. But here's even more importantly, foundational principle number two. My outlook affects everything. Renounce. Clearly. Clearly. Renouncing can help me keep things in perspective. Give up those things that are going to make me crazy for no reason. It's just one word, but it's crucial. It taps straight into number two, that my outlook will affect everything and I can change my outlook. And by changing my outlook, I can move myself up, give myself a boost, lift my own spirits, keep myself on a higher plane, a more energetic, creative, compassionate, loving level. This word renounce taps right into that number two. It sits squarely on the head and it kind of connects to number one. My consciousness will end, that the world will go on without me, that it's up to me to make sure that I use my time to its fullest. That's a pretty good word. Renounce. Now, of course, it's not new. Not anything novel. I'd be surprised if you haven't heard some version of this before, if you haven't already considered that it's important in your own life. Certainly nothing proprietary to Hinduism or the Upanishads. But if I'm looking for guidance, if I'm looking for wisdom that can be distilled into three words, it's a good word to keep in mind. It's easy to, easy to forget it. I had a long doctrine to remember. <laughs> Harder to apply it in daily situations. But if I'm looking for depth and meaning, for bedrock principles to base my own happiness upon, if someone is handing me a school of philosophical thought and they're telling me that it can be boiled down to three words, I better agree that those three words have value. That's my view of renounce. I'm looking for bedrock principles of things that will help me I could do worse. I could do worse than renounce. Getting back to literature and the history of literature, if I'm going to credit the Upanishads as a worthwhile work of literature, if I'm going to analyze its greatness and its relevance, not just by looking at the impact it had or how old it is or how many people have read it. I'm going to analyze its internal, intrinsic, greatness, to analyze that for myself. It would not do any good if I disagreed with its most fundamental principles. Renounce. I'm still on board after renounce. Now, I've talked about this before. I have my problems with the religion I was given as a child. We've gone through some of these in our episodes when we looked at the Old Testament and the book of Job. 
I talked about some of these. God is a father, an angry God, the concepts of heaven and hell, the concepts of human beings as sinners. Those are antithetical to my own basic... They're so antithetical to my own basic outlook on life, the the things that make sense to me as I've developed them over the years. I'm surprised I lasted as long as I did. A human being born into sin. How does that help me with, with number one, the idea that we're all, all things are going to pass and that the world is going to go on without me? All things must pass. I'm going to die. My time is limited. My outlook affects everything. That's number two. Is being ashamed and guilty the best way to spend my time? I've already told you how I feel about authority. An angry God, is that fair? How is that concept helpful to me? Because I should feel afraid of his wrath? Is that what human life is? Is that how I should develop my mind, the new direction I should attempt to push myself toward? To be more and more afraid of God? Now imagine this. Imagine a different view where God is not the creator that we should be endlessly obedient to and thankful for. Imagine that the universe itself is created out of God. That would solve one question, wouldn't it? God created the universe. Who created God? What came before the universe? Where was God when he created it? What if God exists and the universe is created out of God, not created by God, out of God, and everything in the universe is a part of God, including ourselves? Now, this is the Hindu tradition, but it's not incompatible with Christianity. And in some ways it echoes it. Treat others as you would have yourself treated God is everywhere. God is omniscient. God exists in everything. That's part of the tradition, right? That's Christianity. Here's the Upanishad. Those who see all creatures in themselves and themselves in all creatures know no fear. Those who see all creatures in themselves and themselves in all creatures know no grief. How can the multiplicity of life Delude the one who sees its unity. Those are very compelling verses. That's more plausible for me. Those suit me just fine. More than an angry God or a potentially angry God. I'm not looking for another father. I don't know what's true. That might be true. But I do know that my beliefs about it or my approach to it will matter. If I treat others well, if I view myself as a part of the universe, I will be a better person. No matter what origin of the universe story or what belief about the creator that I hold, no matter what's correct, I'll be a better person. And when I'm a better person, I'm using my time better. My attitude is better. Back to foundational principles number one and number two. Here's a little more from that same Upanishad. 
The self is everywhere. Bright is the self, indivisible, untouched by sin, wise, imminent, and transcendent. He it is who holds the cosmos together. I am intrigued. Enough to keep going. Will this give me more? Will the others feel like flashes of insight? I need more time. I need to spend more time with these. Look, I'm making this sound like I'm searching for a religion. I'm really not. I get that this is the history of literature. That's probably what you tuned in for. Let me say this. I'm searching for literature. I'm searching for what it can give me. If I could get this from a 19th century German philosopher or a medieval monk, or I don't know, a pre-Socratic philosopher or a novelist or a poet, I'd be just as interested. I've done this quest before. I started down this path. I made some discoveries, but I lost the way. I lost my way. I'm in the dark woods. I'm trying to find the path again. To see where I am. To understand where to go. Maybe I have more of a need for this path now. A little more desperation. Why? Because I'm older? Maybe. Because I'm busier, have more responsibilities, maybe. Because I've had more frustration and pain than I ever thought possible, maybe. I've seen many more people die. Many more people I love have died. I've experienced more joy and more heartbreak. Will the Upanishads give me what I'm looking for? Maybe. I'm not going to get a teacher. And an awful lot of what they claim they can give me depends on that. Find a teacher. Well, I don't want a teacher. I've had it with teachers. I want my own ideas. I want books. Can they help? That's what I want to know. That's the project. I've been studying books all my life. Books, ideas, words thoughts, and people explain them to me, people tell me what's important about them, tell me what they've found in there, tell me that they understand things that I don't. Now it's my turn. I'm going to approach these books with an open mind, skeptical but open. I'll report back. I'm not going to give you any truths. I see the contradiction here. I'm not presenting myself as a guru or a sage. Any sort of religious figure, God forbid. I'm not your teacher. I'm just a a lonely person offering myself up as a companion to other lonely people. I'm going to report back from the depths. I'm diving down into that ocean so you don't have to. Or maybe I'm just going first. Or maybe you've already gone. You already did your exploration and you're interested in hearing if I see the same things down there that you did when you were down there. I don't know. 
something in the Upanishads is calling to me. Something is telling me that there's more here that we have to deal with. I can give you the basics of literature, the general history, the who, what, where, when, but that's not enough, is it? This is a living history. This is a quest to see if literature matters today. Will the Upanishads give us an answer? Maybe. Will anything in literature? Can it? Will it? Let's hope it does. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson, and today I'm not in the mood for selling any fish. So, no ads, no calls to action. Just my sincerest thank you for listening and my most urgent hope that we will see you again next time. <laughs>